We continue the shear in Navi, Jewish history. Last shear, you recall, we had a story which we closed on very quickly. We cut it very short. And instead of continuing further now, we review that story and fill in the part that was omitted. And then from there go on further. Short piece, but a very important one. Extremely vital information. The story spoke about Sheva ben Bichri, who rebelled against David HaMelech, against King David, and he tried to get the Jews to follow him. Instead, King David sent his armies out against Sheva ben Bichri, especially Yoav. Yoav was the commander-in-chief of King David's armies. Yoav was the greatest general, perhaps, of all time, the most powerful, the most potent in battle. Then he pursued Sheva Bichli to the city of Avela. There, he was trapped. This was a walled city. He went into the city. The people there apparently protected Sheva Bichli. Yoav came to the city. He began to attack the wall of the city. Attack means that he would crash through the wall and kill every person in that city, thereby being certain that he would have killed Sheva ben Bichli. Now the fate of that city seemed doomed. Every Jew in that city, it would appear, would be doomed to die. There was one woman, a Chachoma, a very wise woman in that city, who approached Yoav from the top of the wall. She spoke to him, and Yoav listened very intently. Could you picture a commander-in-chief, a powerful general, who fears no man, who fears no army, who the Torah says could take on an entire army of Philistines single-handedly and defeat them? Here comes a woman, and Yoav stops the battle to listen to the words of this woman. What kind of power did this woman have? Isha Chachama, a wise woman. The Torah says this was no ordinary woman. This woman was a very, very old woman, extremely aged. She was the daughter of one of Yaakov Avinu's sons, Yaakov Avinu's granddaughter. Imagine how old she was now. In fact, she lived longer than any other woman in history. Her name was Serach Bas Osher. She said to Yoav, let me speak to you, because what I have to say is important, and I have the knowledge, the wisdom that is necessary to solve this problem. Just as I played an important role in past history. Uh, she was famous for a number of items. For one thing, she was the one who notified Yaakov Avino that his son Yosef Hatzadik was still alive. One important act of shlichus, carrying such tidings. Secondly, she was the one who notified Lashar Abeno where the coffin of Yosef HaTzadik was, the Jews had to leave Egypt, and they were sworn to take the coffin of Yosef HaTzadik to Eretz Yisrael, to bury him there, but they had been slaves for 210 years. No one in that generation knew where the coffin was buried. So there was only one alive from the previous time who knew where they had placed, secreted the coffin of Yosef HaTzadik. This was Serech Basrasheh, told Meshul Abedo about this. He acquired the coffin, and he carried it with him that night when they left, next morning, he left Egypt onto the desert. During the entire 40 years, he guarded the coffin himself. And then finally, when Yeshua took the Jews into Israel, they carried the coffin and buried it in the city of Shechem. Those who visited the cave of Yosef at Tzadik in the city of Shechem, that's where he was buried. This was the 
work of Serach Bas Usher, who notified Meshav Beda of the Kafir's whereabouts. Now she said to Yoav, I seek peace for the Jews. Wouldn't you like to have the same? Is it fair that for the sake of one man, you want to kill thousands of innocent Jewish men, women, and children? Yoav stopped short and said, you're right, of course not. Chas v'sholem. Why should I spill the blood of any Jew? I ask only one man. I ask for Sheva ben Bechri, the rebel who tried to take away the kingdom from King David. He deserves death. He is the one that I want. If you surrender him, then we will leave you in peace. No one will be harmed. So she said, wait here. I will bring him to you. She went to speak to the elders of that city. And the Pusik says that she brought out the head of Sheva ben Bechri, handed this to Yoav, and he left. That was the end of the battle. She saved the city. Uh, that's all the Pusik says, but the Gemara says it wasn't that simple. It was a very big problem. A big, important meeting had to take place. This Gemara, the Yerushalmi, states that they were confronted with a major problem. Confronted with a question in Hebrew law. Here, they had a demand it was demanding made for the people of the city to surrender a Jew. No matter what kind of a Jew he was, he was still a Jew. Surrender a Jew to his death. There is a Mishnah which states that if the enemy orders a city of Jews to surrender one Jew, or the entire city will be wiped out, then the rule is that the entire city must die rather than to save themselves at the cost of the life of one Jew. This is a clearly set law in the Torah. Now, the second then states, though, that if the enemy demands a certain Jew, if they name that person, then it's different. In other words, they say, we don't want a Jew. Give us one Jew. You decide which one dies. We're telling you which one we want. Give us that one. Otherwise, we'll kill all of you. Then, the Mishnah says, they may release, they may surrender that one because... What do they gain by not releasing him? If they do not surrender that Jew, the one that's being demanded, then the enemy will break inside, and they'll kill that Jew plus the rest of the Jews there. They do surrender him. They're not doing any harm to him because he would have died anyhow, and so they are permitted to surrender this Jew. Now, on that Mishnah, there is a debate in the Gemara, Yerushalmi. Two rabbis debate this point. Where do we get this information from, that you may surrender a Jew if... His name is submitted, the Lord says, from this story. Because Yoav demanded a certain person, Sheva ben Michli. <coughs> then it was permissible to surrender him because the name was given. However, the question now arises, if the enemy says, no matter who the enemy is, give us this man and you're all free, is that man to be surrendered if he is actually innocent of any crime? Could you hand over an innocent person to the enemy or must that person be guilty of a crime which deserves a death penalty? In this case, the case of Shemuel Bichri, we find that he deserved a death penalty because he had re rebelled against the king, the revolutionist, for which the penalty is death. Although there's no such law in the Torah, but it was a law of the land, law of the kingdom, Dina de Malchusa. The one who rebels against the king is supposed to get a death penalty. So. That too is a law which must be obeyed, and therefore in this case, they were permitted to surrender Sheva and Bechri because he deserved a death penalty anyhow. But what if the person, not Sheva and Bechri, not a person, would have 
been demanded with the name given, could the people in the city surrender that person? The debate is, Mishlokish says they could not surrender any person unless the person deserved death. Yechonah says that the person could be surrendered if his name is submitted, though he does not deserve a death penalty, because of the reason given previously. The fact that his life could not be spared anyhow, they might as well spare the lives of the rest of the people. So in Halacha, we find that the Halacha, the Shulchanach, the Din states, Din is like Rishlakish, that you are allowed to surrender this person only if he deserves a death penalty. That's what the Halacha says. Rambam says that, well, what is strange about it, the Taz in asks this question. The fact is that the Gemara tells us a story afterwards, that Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi, Yeshua Levi is one of the greatest rabbis at that time. He was so great that the Gemara compares him to, in a sense, to Rabbi Shimon Yechoizel. He was nostalgic. The first one he met was Rabbi Shimon Yechoizel. If he could meet Rabbi Shimon Yechoizel in heaven, that shows how great he was. Uh, at his time, Shimon Levi had a steady visitor who came to visit him daily. This visitor was Eliyahu Hanavi, who came to study Torah with him each day. It happened that there was a man who was sought for a crime by the king. This man fled and came to the city of Abishuba Levi. The kingdom sent a message to Abishuba Levi, surrender this man to us or else. Now we give you the name of the person and we ask that you surrender him. Abishuba Levi thought about this. He had to resolve this problem. And he felt, I have the answer. The mission says, if the name is given, the person is deserving of a penalty, you may surrender him. So he went himself to this person and told him, I'm sorry, we cannot shield you. You cannot take refuge in our city. We must surrender you to the king. I regret this very much, but it must be done. This is a law, Hebrew law. And so this man was handed over to the king's soldiers. And that day on, Meshul Levi no longer had Eliyadavi as a guest. He felt very brokenhearted. He began to fast, daven to fast daily. He continued the fast until finally he broke through and Eliyahu came to him to speak to him. And he said, Ashulavi asked him, obviously you didn't come because I had done something wrong. Obviously it was by handing over this man to the king. I don't understand. Did I do anything wrong if I obeyed the edict? The statement by the rabbis of the Yamara, this is a clearly written black or white statement in the Mishnah. What did I do wrong there? So Eliyahu answered, that's not a Mishnah for you to follow. It's not a good Mishnah. It's not a Mishnah as Hasidim. Can there be a stranger statement than that? Is there such thing as a good Mishnah and one you, one you follow and you don't follow? And what's bigger, the Taz's Kasha is, this Mishnah is not uh, advisable because it still means you can hand the Jew over to his death. Now, how is anybody supposed to know which Mishnah is to be followed, which one isn't? How is the Mishnah supposed to know that this was not the Mishnah to follow? person can say his faith in the Torah is so pure, the Mishnah says, Talmud says, do this, we do it, without question. That's what he did. Why be blamed for it? Taz answers that, two answers, one, first answer is that this person who was being summoned was not guilty of a death penalty. The Yeshua Levi should have realized that the law remains like the Shlokish, as the Dambam customs, that you can surrender him only if he's guilty of a death penalty. He's supposed to get death anyhow. 
That's one answer. More important, the Taz says, and we all wrote a long discourse on that, more important was the fact that the Yenavi said, Mishnah's Chassidim means to do it in a manner that there's anything wrong with the Mishnah. The way you carried out the words of the Mishnah is wrong. Mishnah says you may surrender this person. Does that mean it's a mitzvah to surrender him? That means you do it eagerly, leap into it? What should be done is, when it comes to doing dirty work like that, you should have shied away from it. Maybe done, has to be done, but let someone else do it. Don't soil your hands with his blood. If you wouldn't do it, others would do it. At least you'd have part of your conscience clear. You did not take direct action against the Jew. It is permissible, it is advisable, it has to be done to save the lives of the Jews in the city. But saving the lives of other Jews by taking the life of another Jew, one Jew's life is not better than a second Jew's life. Who says that his blood is any more red than the first one? So, at least though it is permissible, it should have been your prerogative in letting someone else take this action. You did it yourself, and that was the error. That's the Taz's answer. But back to this case, though, this Isha Chachama, Sarah Bas Asher, was the one who resolved this question. Imagine, at that time, how much she knew. All this discussion we have now, she was fully aware of, she was very learned, more so than the elders in her city, and she is the one that resolved this question for them. It is permissible for us, she said, to surrender Sheva ben Mechri because he is a rebel who deserves death anyhow. Since he is as good as dead, why should all these innocent Jews in the city die for his sake? Without even saving his life either, he's going to die anyhow if Yom breaks in. This was her assistance where she got the people in the city to agree, and this is what saved the lives of the Jews in the city. Now we go to the next chapter. In this next chapter, the Gemara speaks about, at length, the moral of this story, although it will seem like a very remote part, very distantly related to the story itself, that the moral of the story is that if you're looking for a mate, if you're looking for a wife, and the same thing holds true for a husband, then you must marry one who has Jewish blood meaning one who has Jewish characteristics, one who has a Jewish heart. This means, the Gemara says, one who is a rachamon, one who has kindness, pity, compassion, consideration by nature. So nature is that he's kind to others. And secondly, baishon, which means one who is shy, not one who is loud, boisterous. Third, which means one that will freely help another person, whether with money, with advice, or with physical assistance. If you see a person who has these three qualities, the Gemara says, you know that he is a descendant of Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, who have these three qualities. If he's a true Jew, one you can marry. So you find these qualities in a woman, that's a perfect mate. Find it in a man, if, I, if both have these qualities, that's in me I give him, in me I give him. Perfect mating. And among Jews, these qualities are very prevalent. Now, the story itself, the origin of this statement, is a story, one of the last chapters in the life of King David. Torah tells us that in his later years, a famine suddenly broke out among the Jews. A drought. There was no food growing, no rain, and the, this hunger, this hunger and famine took a very heavy toll. This hunger and famine lasted for three years. 
And there's no cure for a thing like this. There's nothing you can do. If there's no rain, you cannot produce food. And it means that people suffer and many die because of this hunger. During the first year of this hunger, David Malach decided to investigate, find out the reason for this hunger. There's no such thing as a plague, a disease, or a harsh, heavily decree coming upon the Jews without a reason. There must be a sin that has brought this decision from heaven. So he felt that there must be idol worship among the Jews. Because we have in the Kriya Shema, where it says that if you will turn away from Hashem to idol worship, the Hashem will become angry and he will hold back the rain in the heavens and not lower it to the earth to give you food. So he sent out to investigate if there's any idol worship among the Jews, and he found that there was none. The Jews are perfect in their loyalty, allegiance to Hashem, their faith in Hashem. Second year, the hunger continued. He investigated further, and his question was, there's another passage which says that if there is infidelity, there is adultery, there is zenus, among Jews, this too can bring about a famine. Again, they studied, they observed, questioned, they found that the Jews are pure in this respect. Third year, the famine continued, and he felt there's one more possibility, one more reason that could cause a famine, and that is, the Gemara says, people who pledge, who make pledges to give staka, and do not fulfill that pledge, this can cause, bring about a famine. Hashem holds back the blessings, the rain, the shefa. He found that there was no Jew who had made any pledges and had withheld it. So King David said, I have definitely solved the problem. I know for certain that I must be the guilty one. The Jews are innocent completely. It must be my fault. So he prayed to Hashem. He asked the Ulam Betumim. He questioned the chest plate of the Kohen Gadol, which he contacts heaven. Then he was told, the answer came back from heaven, that there are two reasons for this famine, which will take a very heavy toll of human life, unless these two reasons are rectified, unless they are corrected. One, there is a serious anger in heaven over the fact that Shaul HaMelech, King Shaul had passed away, and was buried without the proper dignity, without the honor that was fit for a Jewish king. Recall that he was killed in this last battle with the Philistines. The Philistines had mutilated him, and some very courageous fighters among the Jews went, penetrated through the field, the battlefield, to the Philistine city, and retrieved the body of Shaul HaMelech and his sons, brought it back to Israel. But there was no burial with honor, with top honor, as was fit for a king of the Jews. Royalty plus the fact that he was a tzaddik. And this brought about an anger in heaven, which brought down the wrath of Hashem upon the Jews. This was only one reason. The other reason, very paradoxically, was an anger against an act by King Shaul when he had approached the city of Nov. The city of Nov was the city of the Kohanim. He accused them of helping his enemy, King David. King David came there, they had given King David the sword of Goliath and some bread for his people. And 
Shmuel HaMelech accused them of being, of rebelling against him, going to the side of King David, and so he had all the Kohanim killed. Now, the fact that all the Kohanim were killed did not anger heaven so much, because the Kohanim themselves, families of the Kohanim, were mochel, they forgave King Shaul for this act. In that city of Nov, there were also Giv-onim, Anshay Givon. Givonim were non-Jews who had tricked, years back had tricked Yahushua into making a peace treaty with them when they'd wipe out all the Arab nations in Eretz Yisrael that would allow the Givonim to remain alive. Remain alive as water carriers, as wood choppers, but remain alive. In this case, when Shaul had killed the city of, he had the city killed, he didn't put a finger on himself, but he ordered them killed, he called him the city of Nov, there were seven Giv'onim in that city who were killed too. Of course, there's a question around, were they actually killed, or was it that they, they were supported by the city of Nov, by the Kahanim, it was as though they had been killed. In any event, let's say that the seven Giv'onim were killed, and now, there was an anger in heaven because the Giv'onim had to be pacified. They felt, they resented this act against them, and unless the Giv'onim were pacified, then the plague would break out among the Jews. This family would go much further to be a great loss of life. So King David called in the Giv'onim to his palace, and he said to them, there's a problem with the city of Nov. Seven Giv'onim were killed, admittedly, I want to offer you anything at all, whatever you wish, to make peace with you. Well, of course, if we want, we give you nothing. You're still our slaves. But I want you to feel that you've been compensated for your loss. State your price. No matter how much you ask, no matter what ransom you demand, it'll be given to you. They felt if they would ask for thousands, millions, anything he'd pay to get this plague off, to get it removed. These give all them were very cold, heartless. And they said, we want no money at all. All the gold in Israel cannot pay us for this act. We want seven lives in exchange. We want seven children of King Shaul to pay with their lives. They should be killed and hung for this act. King David tried his best to reason with them, to persuade them. What good would this bloodshed do you? We're offering you vast wealth. We're offering you anything you wish. Why take the lives of innocent children? They had no part in this act at all. What kind of revenge is that? The Givonim remained adamant. They refused to budge. And they said, if you want us to be satisfied, you must surrender seven descendants of King Shaul, have them killed and hung, and then we'll be, we will release you from any obligation. So King David was forced to select seven of King Shaul's descendants. He found two sons of King Shaul that still remained alive, and five of King Shaul's grandchildren, the five children of Merav. You recall Merav was the first daughter of King Shaul that King David was supposed to have married. He did not. He married the second daughter, Michal. Merav had five children. And now King David took these five children of Merav, together with the two children of King Shaul, total of seven, and these seven were handed over to the Givonim to be killed. Killed and hung. And the Gemara says it's, this is a difficult task, because you have to select 
going to select among the descendants of King Shoal seven people. If he had exactly seven, we haven't got much of a problem. But if there are more than seven, how do you pick out, how do you sentence to death among innocent people, which do you select? How do you pick them out? Imara says that he could never take it upon himself. So he had them walk past the Oron Kodesh. And whichever one he signed came from the Oron, that this one is accepted, it meant he is accepted as a person to die. The seven that were accepted were, as we said, the two sons of King Shoal, the five children of Merav. Uh, there was one, you recall we mentioned Mephibosheth, <coughs> Mephibosheth, the son of Yonah's son, he was a cripple. One of King David tried his best to, to benefit him by having him eat in his palace. King David was very anxious to see that Mephibosheth remained alive, so he prayed very hard that the Oron should not touch, should not accept Mephibosheth. His tefillah helped. Of course, here the question arises, why did King David daven so hard for Mephibosheth and not for the other Mephibosheth, the son of Shaul HaMelech? This was the grandson. Both had the same name. King Shaul had a son named Mephibosheth. We find in the Gemara Brachos that Mephibosheth was the rabbi of King David, his official rabbi. So if he's going to save one, shouldn't he have attempted to use his power of tefillah to save Mephibosheth, the son of Shaul HaMelech, his own rabbi, rather than Mephibosheth, the son of Yonah's son, King Shaul's grandson, who he liked as a son of his close friend. The answer is, the Mephoshim say that, of course, King David did first try. He used his Tfilos to try to save Mephibosheth's Rebbe. The Tfilos did not help because the Aaron pulled this one in, and then he tried, at least for the next one, Mephibosheth's son of Yonah's son, and there it did help. But he did try for his own Rebbe first. He was not successful, and he finally achieved the answer replied to Tfilos with the second, the grandson. Now these seven members of King Shaul's family were taken, seven innocent people were put to death, and then they were hung. And they were hung and left to hang for approximately seven months. They were put to death in Nisan, and they were removed at the end of Tishrei. A total of seven months' time these dead bodies hung. The mother of the two children guarded these bodies during the entire time, against vultures or other items that might destroy the bodies. And Arne Gemara says, <clears throat> we have some very perplexing questions to ask. First place, what's most, most curious about one item, the fact that there's a passage in the Torah which says, Ish bechetai yumos, a man shall die for his sin, not for somebody else's sin. Children shall not die for the sins of the fathers, nor fathers for the sins of the children, they will die only for his sin alone. By what right, how could we have allowed this mitzvah, this din, this law of the Torah to be broken because of these vicious givonim? Why kill innocent children for an act? We wouldn't even call it a sin. An act by someone else, an act by King Shaul. The Gemara answers that in order to be Kaddish Hashem, Kaddish Shem Hashem, in order that there should be no complaint by Goyim, that Goyim should not say that the Jews are cruel to converts. For generations later, the Goyim would say, look what the Jews did to the Givonim in that city. They have, they converted, they joined the Jews, and this is how they treat them. They kill them. They kill innocent converts. 
They make a pogrom. Notice, the one time when there might be a suspicion of a pogrom, it wasn't. There might be a suspicion of seven converts being killed, seven million being killed, converted. In order to avoid this, the Gemara says, let the better be torn out of the Torah, a mitzvah. Let one letter of the Torah be erased, rather than have the Chil Hashem. That goes to say that Jews committed a crime against converts. Of course, the question is, what is that letter? There's a whole sentence there. Man shall die because of his sin. How do you say, tear out one letter of the Torah? The answer is, that letter is a letter of Vav. The Pasuk says, Ish bechetai yumos. Each one shall die for his sin. Remove the Vav, chetai ish bechet yumos. A man shall die for a sin. Sometimes it's somebody else's sin. Or it's a question of Kiddush Hashem, Kiddush Hashem Shemayim. A person could die for somebody else's sin, as we find depicted in this story itself. Now, the next question was, how about the fact that there is a mitzvah of the Torah, very clearly stated, that even if you do kill someone, if someone dies through the act of the court, he is found guilty by the Sanhedrin, by the king, and he is sentenced to death, the sentence is carried out, and the person killed must be hung up on a tree for all others to learn a lesson from. See the penalty, see that the Torah believes in capital punishment, and let others learn a lesson they should avoid committing crimes in which there is death. But at the same time, the respect to the body, respect to the body, the person who is now dead, his sin has been forgiven, we do not allow a mitzvah of Torah, do not allow this body to hang overnight. We summon the Vlasei lights. You are not permitted to hang in the veil of his dead body on a tree overnight. It must be removed before nightfall. How come here we have these bodies, whether they died innocently or otherwise, they were put to death? Why did they hang for more than the day? Why overnight and why for seven months? That's like a month for each one, averaging. Or every one of them hung for a total of seven months. Again, the Gemara answers, because of the fact that let the Goyim pass by and see this Kiddush Hashem, that this is what these people died. Why? Because of the fact that they didn't hurt Jews, they hurt Goyim. Goyim were hurt, and this is the penalty they got for it. Imagine what a wonderful people these Jews are. What would happen then? They would admire the Jewish religion so much, they'd want to become part of it. The Gemara says that in that period of time, these bodies were hanging there, a total of 150,000 Goyim converted. That's how many were added to the Jewish ranks. This is what's known as the Kiddush Hashem, Kiddush Hashem Shemayim. Beautified, sanctified the name of Hashem, and brought honor, respect to the Jewish religion among all the nations. Now, in this case, though, the Gemara says, the moral lesson learned here is, fine, this had to be done. The plague stopped, the famine was over, the Givana were pacified, there was no more famine, and of course, immediately afterwards, King David made a special burial service for King Shaul with honor. This was all through. But the Imara says, note, note the vicious heartlessness of these Givonim. Which person who has a heart, who has pity and kindness, would ever demand the life of an innocent person to satisfy his own whim? No matter what reason there is behind it, no matter what type of vendetta or vengeance he would seek to ask for the life of an innocent person to satisfy his desire for revenge, this can be the quality, the characteristic only of one who does not come from 
the Kedusha of our ancestors, our Yitzhak, the fathers of the Jews. So if we ever find a person who fails to possess kindness, pity, consideration, we know that he must come from a wrong line, a bad line. His ancestry must be one that is not pure. And a person should not attach himself, the Gemara says. Attach himself means find a mate to marry, then to give birth to children who have the same characters, do not attach yourself to one who has not possessed these qualities. This we learn from this story, to avoid ones like these Givanim, and remain, see that your bond, your tie is with a Jew, one of Jewish extract, who has these fine qualities, this goodness, kindness, softness of nature. And the Gemara says that after this incident, King David still did not find peace yet. Hashem spoke to King David and said to him, How long more do you have to have this hanging over your head, this crime of the city of Nov? Karnam were killed. He who had seven sons of seven descendants of King Shaul killed, all due to the fact that you brought it about. Unintentionally, of course. You came to the city of Nov, you took the sword, you took the bread there. You had a part in it. And Hashem is so particular with tzaddikim, the slightest act is punished to the highest degree. So Hashem said to King David, I will give you a choice. One of two things. You must pay this penalty. Either that all your children will be wiped out, or else that you should fall into the hands of your enemies, be captured by your enemies. Which would you prefer? The King David said, I would much rather fall into the hands of my enemies than to have my children wiped out, I'd rather see that my descendants carry on after me. So Hashem issued a decree. Shortly afterwards, King David was out hunting, and he shot an arrow at an animal which kept on eluding him. He kept on moving until he found himself in the land of the Philistines. And when he came there, he came to the section, the land of the four giants. You recall that Arpah, the mother of Goliath, Goliath the giant, had four more sons, all giants. And they sought revenge for their brother. Goliath was killed. These four villains wanted to avenge Goliath. First one was Yishbi. He was called Yishbi Benov. The puzzle says Yishbi Benov, meaning that he was Yishbi who came because of the story of Nov. Yishbi saw King David suddenly. He said, that's the killer of Goliath, so he quickly took hold of him and wanted to crush him with his bare hands, this giant. He pressed him down to the ground and bent a log over him and sat down on the log and just, with all his strength, crushed down. The Gemara says that a miracle happened and the earth beneath the log became very soft and King David was moved down into the earth, so he wasn't crushed. At that moment, the Gemara says that King David's second general command, Avishai, Avishai was the brother of Yoram, his general, Avishai was washing his face, and he suddenly saw drops of blood in the water. He looked up and he saw a dove tearing its feathers out. And he said, that's a sign that the king's life must be in danger. Now, how will I be able to find the king? Where is he? So he ran quickly to the Sanhedrin, to the chief rabbis, and asked them if he may ride the king's horse. It's, of course, a cardinal crime. But in the case of emergency, may he ride the king's horse, and they permitted it. Took the king's horse, and by its scent, it traveled to where King David was. 
On the way, he rose as he came to that city, he passed by Arpa, the mother, the original mother, as the sister of Ruth, sister of Ruth, who had converted, who was the great-grandmother of King David. She was the mother of these giants. She was sitting on the road with a spinning wheel, weaving. And she saw Avishai coming. She said, this is my chance to kill a Jew. She picked up the spinning wheel. She threw it with all her strength at him, but it wasn't enough to reach him. She was very old. She couldn't reach him. And she pretended as though it slipped out of her hands. She said to him, Sonny, will you bring back that spinning wheel to me? And he said, why, certainly. And he threw it at her with his strength. And he succeeded in killing, finally, this witch, Arpa, was killed by Avishai. It's a very important historic, historical fact. She was killed by Avishai, and this came in handy later on. Avishai continued on, and as he came close to Yishbi, the giant, Yishbi noticed him, and he felt that Avishai was the top general there among the Jews. He would better if he escaped. So he, he saw it from a distance. The Gemara says that he saw that King David was alive. He lifted up King David and threw him high into the air. And then, a straight line. He watched when he come down. He planted a spear in the ground to have King David fall directly on top of him, impaled by the spear, killed in his fall. And then he started to flee, this giant. As Avishai came close, he saw what was happening. How do you save King David? The first place, the Lord says, that the first miracle happened, a very important miracle, that Avishai had Kefitsa Sadenach, which means the same miracle as happened to Yaakov Avinu happened to Avishai. When the earth came towards him, he traveled at unusual speed. Parakitzadenach requires certain special heavenly powers, power that Elianavi had, Hashem HaKadosh stories about him who did this, travel at the speed where the earth comes towards him rather than him going towards the earth. The earth is sort of shortened. When he came that close, he saw King David falling. How to stop it? He said again a certain Shem, a name of Hashem, that through whose power King David remains suspended in midair. Now this sounds like Kabbalah stories. This is actually in the Gemara. This is a story that's actually written in the Gemara itself. Gemara says Kinev was suspended in midair, that way he didn't fall on the spear. And while in midair, Abishai had a discussion with King David. He asked him, Why did you come here? What happened? What brought this about? And King David replied, I did this because of the fact that I was given a choice, and I agreed to be handed over to fall to the hands of my enemies. This is what happened to me. Mishai said, retract your statement and ask that your, your children should be wiped out instead. King David agreed because Mishai explained that there was no problem, no fear for his children. They had their own muzzle. The question was then, what happens now? So Mishai said to King David, now I'll say another Shem. You'll come down to earth safely. Then we'll pursue Yishbi together. Mishai said a Shem. King David came down. Then he, a very great distance. They could not get them until Avishai called out to Yishbi, your mother is dead, your mother was killed. This news so shocked and paralyzed Yishbi that he became weakened, and then King David and Avishai together were able to kill Yishbi, this giant. After this, King David came back safely, and the generals insisted that he never go out to battle again. They will take care of all wars henceforth. One final item, the Gemara asks, 
surely King David was greater in the knowledge of Torah, knowledge of Kabbalah, the knowledge of these names of Hashem to perform miracles with. Why didn't he himself say this name of Hashem and suspend himself a bit there? Why did he have to have Abishai to help him? He were asked that when a person is in trouble himself, he cannot help himself. He needs an outsider. The biggest sadik, the strongest person, if he is in prison, the wisest person cannot free himself. He's in prison with his hands tied up. But if he's outside, he could figure a plan to release those who are in prison. Therefore, it required someone on the outside who was free to be able to use this name of Hashem, this power to suspend King David in midair at the same The first Shazari Kodesh explained too that according to the Gemara, we can understand Yishbi's intentions, his act. Yishbi felt in the back of his mind, of course, he was a rush, was very wicked, but he felt that cold-blooded murder of King David might be punished someday, somewhere. And so he decided that, knowing Hebrew law, that Gorobah ben Ezekiel, that if you cause, just, you're just the cause of, of harm, but not directly, that you're not to blame, you cannot be put to death for it. So he threw King David up in the air, though enough that if he'd fall, he wouldn't be hurt much. At the time he threw up in the air, there was nothing wrong. He did no big crime. But he put a spear in the ground. Spear in the ground. He said, I'm, doing, I'm just putting a spear in the ground. Not the King David. It's not my fault if he happens to fall on this spear. These two acts combined could bring about the death of King David, but individually, nothing wrong with them. This he learned from the Mishnah, which says that a person throws someone's uh, dishes out of the window. At the bottom, there are pillows where the dishes would not be broken. Then he runs down, uh, he gets there before the dishes do, removes the pillows, he's one, of, he's one of those races, he removes the pillows, and the dishes are broken, he is free. There's no penalty. Well, let's say it's done by two people. One throws it, the second removes the pillows, neither one is guilty. So this was the plan of, of Yishpi. Of course, there was, this plan was an error. In any event, Yishpi paid with his life. He was the first of the sons, the giants, to die. Eventually, the other three were killed too, as we find later on in the ensuing story. As he said, King David was then requested by his generals to remain at home, not to go out to battle anymore. This he agreed to, and we find the final chapter in the life of King David in the next year of Mitzvah. We should be zecher again to the true Amunah Sadiqim, and to see with our eyes the coming of Mashiach Ben David Amalek, for your base of Mitzvah. Amen. Amen.